Hi, and welcome to the Renovate Podcast. My name is Robert Newberry, and I'm on staff with Renovate, which is a ministry in Fort Worth, Texas for young adults. This week, we are going through the book of Nahum in our series on the Minor Prophets. We hope you enjoy. guys tonight? Good. Praise God. Tonight is uh, sweet. I believe God is going to do something cool tonight because that is what he does. And by cool, I mean transformative and radical and making much of himself. Uh, I'm excited for tonight. I'm a little honestly intimidated. I'll tell you why here in a second. Um, I'm intimidated. I'm glad you're here again. So if you walked in a little bit late and you are a guest, I'm especially glad you're here. I hope that you feel welcome here. Um, where we are going, if you're a guest, is we're uh, kind of between these two series. We've been uh, spending a lot of time in the minor prophets. Uh, and tonight we are in the book of Nahum, which is a minor prophet. It's three chapters long. It's short and sweet. Uh, tonight's sermon in theory, has been prepared to be short and sweet. We'll see what the Lord does. Um, but, uh, but I'm excited, but I'm also intimidated by this book uh, because this book is hard for me. Uh, this book and the three chapters in it have been hard. It's been hard to study. It's been hard to sit in. Um, it is a book that I know is good. And it is in God's word and it is powerful and it will not return void. And so what I get to do in the next 20 or 30 minutes is I just get to preach it. I get to unpack, explain, try to wrap up in three chapters what this book is about and then apply it to us and see what he has for us in it. And I don't have to add to it or take away anything from it. I get to just preach it. But it's hard. It is a hard book that's going to leave some marks. Um, And I was thinking about this just about an hour ago, thinking, man, what is this like, right? And so I have an illustration. It could be a horrible illustration, right? And so just chalk that up to me being a bad preacher. But here's my illustration. Um, doing stuff that, like, man, you know it's the right thing to do. Uh, you, you should go there. But it's just hard, and it's a difficult thing. That happened to me today. I went to lunch today with a buddy, and we went to Golden Corral. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Golden Corral is one of those places I was reminded today at lunch. That is not good news. Golden Corral is a part of the American experience, right? As an American, I grew up in Garland, Texas. It's a part of who I am as a man, but it is a horrible place, right? It is a horrible, horrible place. And in Golden Corral, I feel like, as I said, the book of Nahum, see where this transition is going, it feels like this is the wrath of God, right? Like this is good. It's a part of the full counsel of God. But Golden Corral, if you have never been to Golden Corral, uh, praise God for you. Uh, man, his protection over you is good. It is like, um, Golden Corral is like, uh, okay, picture a really nice steakhouse that gets burned to the ground and he has to sell the property to his drunk uncle and his drunk uncle puts a really gross buffet in place of that, right? And all of the food is at least three years old, right? That's Golden Corral, right? Golden Corral is like if, uh, this is, um, okay, if Luby's had a baby with CeCe's. If Luby's and CeCe's had a baby, but then wait, 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 but then you find out that Luby's and CeCe's were actually distant cousins, and so their baby, you know, like had some genetic abnormalities, that would be Golden Corral. 
Golden Corral, Golden Corral is the nickelback of restaurants. That's what it is. This is fun. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of more on the spot. Golden Corral, Golden Corral, they're gonna hate this one. Golden Corral, if A&M had a cafeteria, it would be Golden Corral. <laughs> I just, I know, calm down, calm down. I went, to, I went to Criswell Bible College, which is the Golden Corral of Bible Colleges. My wife went to A&M, it's fine, I just like, you guys, man, I like picking on y'all because you're so sensitive and you make all those cult noises. Okay, I don't even know what I was talking about. Okay, Nahum. <laughs> okay, this book is tough, right? I don't even know how I got on that one. This book is tough, right? Um, this book is one of those books in the Bible that a lot of people don't read. Maybe you've never read it. I would encourage you, after tonight, I'm going to summarize it for you. I would encourage you to spend some time in it. Um, but it's hard, right? It's one of those things that's like, man, I don't know that I enjoyed that. Right? Like, I don't know that I like leave this book and I'm like, man, I just enjoyed that book, but it is good. And in it, in it, there really is truth that should bring freedom to us and bring deeper worship to us and bring more repentance. And so let me go ahead and jump into this, give you the big picture, and then we're going to walk through, okay, what, what is God doing with this? So here we go. Uh, Nahum is a letter to Israel about the destruction of Assyria. All right, so let me paint the context here. And if you'll remember, Assyria, a few weeks ago we preached, I preached Jonah. And Jonah was going to prophesy uh, Assyria's destruction, Nineveh technically, which is the capital of Assyria. So if Nineveh falls, Assyria falls. And so he was going to preach the destruction, and they actually repented. They repented of their sin, and God actually saved them. This was a couple hundred years before. Now, a couple hundred years later, they have obviously fallen way back into wickedness, Assyria has. And they have just done wicked, awful, awful stuff uh, as a nation, these people have. Uh, And specifically, they have done awful stuff all throughout the globe, but specifically to God's people. The people who believe in the Hebrew God, the Jewish people. Uh, Assyria in 722 goes and they capture the whole northern part of Israel. It's called the northern kingdom. And they go in and they ransack it and they just take captives, murder people. It is... Uh, it is one of the most brutal things in the history of God's people uh, in this time in 722 when, when Assyria sweeps through. They drag lots of them off to captivity. It is a dark, dark place. I'm going to read you. Um, I debated doing this, but I'm going to read it anyway. It's, it's pretty gory. But I'm going to read you an account of a poem of a general from Assyria of how he talks about the brutality of who they are as a nation. And I, I don't mean to be uh, trite about it. I think it's important for us to understand who these people are that are going uh, to hear about God's wrath in this book. Here's what this general of uh, one of the Assyrian armies wrote, and historians have dug it up and they've translated it into English. Um, he says this. He says... He says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed from my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with the blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plains like grass. Their testicles I cut off and tore out their privates like seeds of cucumbers. Hey, welcome to Renovate, everybody. We're glad you're here. Um, 
this, there are accounts and accounts. Historians do a whole, you could Google brutality of Assyrians and find all kinds of historical documents. These people hated God's people. These people celebrated causing all kinds of pain and dismemberment and gory, awful, awful stuff. I think it's important for us to know who the Assyrians were and what they were doing and how they were bragging about what they were doing to God's people. So Nahum writes this 90 years later. He prophesies this over Assyria 90 years after they have swept through approximately, swept through, wiped out the northern kingdom, taken them off, bragged about what they've done. Uh, and so you've had a, a generation now live and die under the reign of Assyria. And so this is his book. This is what, he, what God has given him to say, hey, Assyria, listen up, because this is who you are. This is your wickedness. This is how awful and vile you are. And listen to three chapters of God's response to how vile you are. So it's, it's three chapters, and it's three chapters of God's wrath. Chapter 1 is very clearly God's wrath. Um, I'm just going to read verse 2 of chapter 1 in Nahum, because I think uh, it, it summarizes it well. In, chapter, in verse 2, right off the bat, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So right off the bat in chapter 1, we see Nahum say, hey, God is going to get vengeance. We know what you have done, what you have done is wrong, and God will repay what is wrong, and he is not going to let it go. Chapter 2, he then specifies and zooms in on Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he talks about, man, you are going to get destroyed. Look at the first two verses of chapter 2. He says, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, dress for battle, collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, God's people, as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So he says, hey, get ready. God's vengeance is coming. He will repay what you have done. He will restore God's people. He's coming after you. Suit up. It doesn't matter because then chapter 3, he brings the heat and he says this God's wrath will be definitive. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. He starts getting sarcastic here. He says, draw water for the seed, strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold, right? Like get ready, do whatever you want to do in your fetal attempts. And then in verse 15, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. And then look at verse 19. So again, I want you to get a picture of, Nahum is three chapters of God's wrath towards wicked people. Verse 19, the very last verse. Again, remember who these people are. The very last verse. This is what it says. It says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. God will stand over you. Wipe you out. There is no ceasing to your hurt. Your wounds are grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. This is the book of Nahum. It is heavy. It is God's word. It is important, but it is a heavy, heavy look staring at three chapters of the wrath of God towards unrighteousness. 
It's a book about God's wrath. It's a book about God's wrath poured out on people who deserve it. The Old Testament, we see this often in the Old Testament. If you've ever read Joshua, the book of Joshua, it's an incredible book. I love the book of Joshua. But if you read carefully the book of Joshua, there is some gnarly stuff that happens. God sends Joshua and his army to wipe out people. Jericho, right, which maybe saw the veggie tales of Jericho, and they like walk around, and I think they're grapes or cranberries or something, and they wipe out. It is, he wipes out. I mean, those walls collapsed on people. Those walls collapsed on people. And God's army swept through the land that was God's land, wiping out idol-worshipping, wicked people left and right. David, in the Old Testament, is told to wipe out. I mean, we see David constantly warring with the Philistines, these people who, who laughed and mocked the Hebrew God, our one true God. And God uses David in these military victories to wipe out evil, wicked people. And we see that's a picture of God's wrath being poured out on them. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's parts where he tells his people to leave no one alive. To wipe out entire cities and leave no one alive. And actually people get in trouble when they don't fully obey him and don't wipe out everyone. The wrath of God is something that, at least in the Old Testament, you can't... There's no doubt about it. There is an aspect to who God is that we see this aspect of his wrath in the Bible. We see it there. It is in the Old Testament. And the wrath of God... Listen to me. The wrath of God is the just outcome for what happens with a perfect and holy God coming in contact with an unholy people, an unholy nation, right? The perfect holiness of God with a just outcome as it intersects with an unholy, wicked people. And when those two things come in contact, we see throughout the Old Testament the wrath of God played out. Uh, The best illustration I can think of is simply fire, right? Fire is this thing that is majestic and powerful and and awe-inspiring in a way. And yet fire is a thing that when it comes in contact with things that are flammable, because of the chemistry of those things, because of the dynamic nature of those two forces, it wipes and it purifies what is flammable. And it sweeps through that. We see the wrath of God function as this purifying powerful fire in parts of the Old Testament, and certainly in the three chapters of the book that we're camped on tonight. I can't understand or make sense of God's wrath if I can't see properly God's holiness and my sin. Let me say that again. God's wrath will never even begin to make any sense to me. I'll never be able to wrap my head around around worshiping a God who might, in times of history, be wrath-filled. I can't wrap my arms or my mind around that if I don't have a proper or growing proper relationship of what God's holiness is and what it means and what my sin looks like and what I deserve. If I can't adjust those things properly, well, then definitely God's wrath doesn't make sense. And so what happens is we minimize one or the other so often. I minimize one or the other so often. And so that's what we're going to talk about a good amount tonight. And the reality is I'm just not comfortable with God's wrath. Right? We don't preach 
God's wrath a lot. Hey, welcome to Renovate. Let's talk about this and that. And here's God's wrath. And it's not popular. It's not how you grow a ministry. That's not fun. And yet here it is. And I am uncomfortable with it. Honestly, I'm uncomfortable with aspects of it. I don't want to talk about it. I would love to not really mention the parts in the Bible about God's wrath sweeping through a wicked people and, and people clapping over their unending pain because that is a just punishment of what they deserve. Here's what I think. Honestly, my flesh, my, my mind, I say, man, that's uncomfortable. I don't really want that aspect of God. That sounds mean. And so I'm going to try to minimize. Right? I'm going to minimize. I'm going to dial back. Or I'm going to contextualize that and say, well, that's the Old Testament God. And I think there's a, there's a good place for that, right? To say, well... Maybe that's just the Old Testament God. The Old Testament God was angry, wiped out people. But look at the New Testament. Right? Look, look at the New Testament. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. What's he do? He tells people, if you're hit on one cheek, turn the other cheek. This is God in person. So if you are wronged, don't wipe them out with fire and wrath, but turn the other cheek. Right? We talk about the story that this woman was caught in adultery and dragged before Jesus and all these men were going to stone her because of her sin and the penalty of her sin. And what's Jesus do? Right? He picks her up. He says, he who is no sin can cast the first stone. They all leave. He picks her up. He says, where are your condemners? Then I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. We see this really beautiful and correct picture of a gracious Jesus. Jesus hangs out. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is hanging out with wicked sinners and not pouring out God's wrath. But he is God in the flesh. So how do we justify these two things, right? What do we do with that? Because Jesus, so maybe there's just two gods. Maybe, great, cool. I've now got the Jesus God, and I'm cool with that one because he's way nicer, way more palatable for me, way easier to preach. I'm going to follow that one and worship that one. The God of the Old Testament scares me. I'm going to kind of minimize that one. I like that. I like that, God. Right? I like that picture. Let me show you, really soberly, the wrath of God in the New Testament. You ready? The wrath of God. The wrath of God wiping out nations in the Old Testament. And this beautiful Jesus comes along. God's only son. Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 22, chapter 15. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. They decided what each should take, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one to his right and one to his left. And those who passed by, they derived wages, waging their head and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elisha will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this is the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This point in history where the most innocent man, God incarnate in the flesh, lived a perfect life, goes to a cross and suffers a horrific death. A horrific death that we see is actually the death we deserve. That we see is actually the wrath of God being poured out. 1 John 4.10 says this. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Which means that He loved us first and He sent His Son to be the payment for our sin. Which is what incurs the wrath that you and I deserve. That Jesus was sent to be that. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined for us wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation. He is that payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God took Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might get the righteousness of God, not what we deserve, the wrath of God. The gory crucifixion, the fact that 2,000 years ago our Savior was beaten, He was mocked. He was spit on. They took thorns and they wrapped them around his head. They flogged him. They made him carry a cross up a hill. They lined his feet up and they put nails through his feet. They nailed his hands. They stood him up on a pole for people to continue to mock him lifting up on the nails in his hands to get air. And don't say we don't see the wrath of God in the New Testament. But that's what we deserved. We deserve that wrath. The propitiation, the payment of my sin happened. So when I read Nahum and I see the wrath of God and I see this God who takes sin so seriously... 
And I see this God who takes his holiness so serious because he is holy and he is worthy of his holiness. And he is the one thing worthy of holiness. And what he does defines justice. His holiness definitionally is justice. And with me, in my complex, I say, well, that doesn't seem fair. As this unrighteous person who has had the wrath that I deserve poured out upon my Savior 2,000 years ago. So that I, in change, actually get righteousness from him who knew no sin to be made sin. So that I might be righteous. The Old Testament, the prophets, this book, Nahum, we see God's wrath poured out on sin. And in that, we should have this healthy fear. This healthy fear. This healthy hatred for our sin. To see it the way God sees it. That my sin and my wickedness and my selfishness, which I'm guilty of today, and will be waiting for me tomorrow, that I have this healthy hatred for that sin in me. And what that says about who I believe God is. And we should see the gospel through that lens. We want to water down God's wrath. We are just watering down God's mercy. We're cheapening God's grace when we do that. When we see a book like this and say, I don't really want to preach that. This is just three chapters of God's wrath coming, God's wrath coming. You guys deserve it. And he does, and he wipes out Assyria. I should look at that and that should actually stir my affection to say, man, that's what I deserve. That's what I deserve. And in the New Testament here now because of Jesus, that's not what I get. I don't get that punishment that I deserve. God's wrath is withheld from me. And if you are in Christ and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've surrendered your life, you'd say, my life is no longer my own then God's wrath is withheld from you. And so I don't ignore it and I don't minimize it. I look at God's wrath and I say, oh, the grace. Oh, the depth of God's grace. What do we do with this tonight? What do we do with this tonight? Here's a few things. One, I think this, looking at God's wrath, looking at a book like Nahum, I think this, should propel our worship to be deeper. So real practically, tonight, what do we do with this story? What do we do with three chapters of God's wrath? What do we do when we look at that in the counsel of all of what God is doing and what he has done and we look at Jesus? Tonight, our worship should be deepened. My worship should be deepened when I look at that God. And when I look at what he deserves and the holiness that he deserves and his holiness, and I look at where I'm at and I see the chasm of that and I see what I deserve and yet I also see what I receive. If you are weary tonight, if you feel heavy burden because you feel the weight of your sin, the Holy Spirit convicts And brings to the forefront the weight of your mistakes and your sin and the things that aren't of God. And if that is you tonight, then what's happening is the Holy Spirit is also simultaneously saying to you, listen, it is not on you anymore. That is what our God is saying. So if we feel the weight and if you feel burdened, then what the God of the universe is saying, if you are in Christ, is that is not on you anymore. I made him who is no sin 
sins so that you tonight could get righteousness. If that doesn't define the depth of my worship, then I'm just singing songs. That is the depth of my worship. Oh, would I understand what I've been saved from more? Then would I be able to raise my hands or have my heart in a place of full adoration? Because Jesus is saying over your life tonight, if you are in Christ, that is not you anymore. He is saying tonight, yes, all of that sin, all of that weight, all of that unholiness is forgiven. Is forgiven. That compels us to worship. Not just sing songs, but that is what worship is, is just a response for that. If you want to sing songs, great. If you want to go serve, great. But all of that is a heart of worship that just responds to say, I can't believe it. I'm staring at what I deserve, and I'm staring at what I get, God's righteousness. That is worship, the beautiful chasm that Jesus bridges. Don't minimize it. Don't minimize it. Don't just ignore that God. Stare at it and then say, but all of that is on him. Oh, what a good God. What a God worthy of our worship. What a God worthy of our surrender. I hope you walk out of here. I hope you go to sleep tonight and put your head on your pillow and your worship is a little deeper. I hope that for my soul, that tonight when I put my head on my pillow and I think about Jesus and I think about what he did, that my worship is a little bit deeper because I know what I deserve. Man, would that be a work of the spirit in us tonight? My worship deeper. And secondly, would my hatred for my sin grow? Man, when I read an Old Testament prophet that's, that's rearing against the sin of these wicked people, would I grow in my appreciation and worship for Jesus and his grace? And that simultaneously, would my disdain for my own sin grow? Not my hatred for myself, who is in Christ and called righteous. But when I see my sin, it's like, God, that is so gross. I want to flee so bad from that. I want to run from that. I want to do whatever it takes. I want brothers and sisters who know Jesus' grace to know about my sin. And that I can look at my pornography addiction and I can say, God, you are better than this. You have freed me from this. I don't want this. This is not of you. This is not how you created this to work. This is not beautiful. I can look at sin in relationships with each other. You can look at sin in your life. I can look at my pride and say, God, this is wicked. This is wicked and it deserves your wrath, but I don't get it. I don't get your wrath. I get your grace, but let me see my sin the way it is. I can run from that. I can see ways that I hurt my body. Do things that are not what... What God has called me to do, the way I treat my body, what I eat, what I don't eat, the way I might be captive to this sin and a false mindset. And see tonight, God, I don't want that because that is not of you. Would you give me more of a disdain, Jesus, for my sin? Would I see it the way you see it? Which is with fire wanting to sweep out and purify it. Would our worship grow deeper And would our disdain for our sin grow in the context of walking in his grace? Walking in his grace. And here's the the last thing. Last thing I want you guys to hear tonight, and this was something that I really felt like the Lord put on my heart from the beginning of studying this book, and even during Christmas break when I was studying this book, I was walking through some stuff with some friends, and this just book kept coming up in my head and in my heart. And I don't really know who this is for, what I'm about to say. But I'm going to say it anyway. 
And if God has it for you, then great. I think this book... Sorry, I'm sniffly. I think this book um, is a book that also should set some people free. And here's what I mean by that. Dang it. Um, Man, there are some of you in this room who have been hurt. Right? You have been hurt. And uh, things have been done to you. Um, Things have been taken from you. There's been abuse. There's been bullying. There's been neglect. There's been lies that have been spoken into your life. There's been really hurtful things that have happened to you. And you've been wronged. And you're carrying that. And you're carrying that and you're looking at the way you've been wronged. And rightfully so. And you want to see justice. You want to see justice from that. And you're in this period of saying, man, this stuff has happened to me. And yet, um, where's the justice? What kind of a God would let this happen? Where's the justice in this? I think Nahum is a book that God wants to use tonight to set you free. Because it is a book where we see so clearly, vengeance is God's. He is going to bring about justice. We don't know the timing. We don't know when that's going to be. But he is going to bring about justice in your life. Or at least he's going to bring it about in his timing. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit tonight, if that's you and you're the person who needed to hear that truth, can hear that and say, okay, I don't have to hang on to this anymore. I don't have to become obsessed with trying to find the justice for this. I can trust that God will take care of that. That the wickedness and the hurt and the whatever it is, that God will take care of that. And I can let go of that and I can rest in a God who shows me grace when I deserve his wrath. That's what I think the Spirit of God wants to teach us from Nahum. Let me pray over you. Father, would you show us these things? We love you, God. And we love you because you first loved us and loved us and sent your Son to be the propitiation of our sin. We want to see you the way you are, God. We don't want to minimize you. We want to see who you are. We want to see how serious you take sin. But Lord, we also know that we need to receive your grace. And that the weight of our sin, the weight of the wrath that we deserve was on Jesus. And so God, would you set brothers and sisters free tonight who are carrying a weight and a wrath that you have already poured out 2,000 years ago on the Savior of the universe? And tonight, would you set us free to worship that Savior deeper and deeper? Would you do that work? And for people who are hurting and grieving and holding on, waiting and seeking and trying to find a justice to come, God, would you tell them that you are trustworthy and that you will bring about vengeance in your timing? And Lord, as we are about to sing a song and sing lyrics about how your mercy triumphs over judgment, God, would that be so true from our lips 
that we could sing about mercy triumphing over judgment without having to reduce or minimize you, but saying, yes, your judgment's what we deserve, and yet your mercy is what we get. And singing about your kindness leading us to change, that yes, that's our response, to receive your kindness. And God, for my brother or sister in this room who's listening tonight, and God, they've never received that grace. They're still trying to pay for their own sin. They're still trying to be good enough. God, tonight would they stop and would they surrender in the name of Jesus? Would they say, I need Christ in me. I need the Holy Spirit to come and fill me and I choose to surrender my life to the only one capable of taking the penalty that I deserve. Holy Spirit, do that work in our hearts, deep in our worship, all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. This is a message that can be hard to hear. The truth that justice belongs to the Lord alone. So often, we want to be the ones who give out our own justice because it feels fitting. Wrongs were done to us that left us hurt, so we should get to be the ones to make them right. But the Lord meets us in that place where we feel wronged and says that He is the one who will give out true justice. He says He will care for the afflicted and all of us who have been hurt by others and need healing. Because in the end, His justice restores and it brings hope and life to all who are affected by it. So in the face of all of our pain, we turn to Him and trust that His way is best and know that He will one day heal every hurt. So if you want help walking along that path and need some direction, reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw and we would enjoy getting to talk you through whatever is going on. That is it for us, and we hope to see you next week.